You're listening to the Citrus Church Podcast. Now, here's the message. Well, this morning is Palm Sunday, as I mentioned already. And this morning is also the day where we are concluding our sermon series focused on the Lord's Prayer. Now, we've talked about all the different pieces of the Lord's Prayer, and if you're joining with us for the first time and you want to catch up, we have those on our podcast. Again, you can find that in today's scripture and the notes at today at citrus.org. Um, as we finish up this sermon series, we come to the last part of the prayer. We're praying the part, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, depending on your faith background, you might add an extra forever and ever, or kind of have a little different words there, but it's this part of the kingdom and the power and the glory are all yours, God. And you might be surprised if you've been following along in Scripture as Jesus offers these words to his disciples, both in Matthew and in Luke. You might be surprised to find out that those words are not in the Bible. So where they come from? Well, those particular words were added very shortly after the resurrection of Jesus in the years and the centuries that followed by the followers of Jesus as a way of kind of bringing the prayer together as a close. Uh, that's actually a praise statement, and it comes from 1 Chronicles 29. And if you remember back to our call to worship that Jared and I just led with you all and your voices together, was a part of that was that, that early, those early believers pulled from 1 Chronicles 29 that praise statement and put it onto the end of the Lord's Prayer. It was a way of offering a doxology, a summary statement, a summary praise of God. And maybe it makes you wonder why... Why would they add that phrase? Why would they want to put something onto the end of what Jesus gave to them? Well, we don't have a definitive answer, but I think that one of the reasons why we can see that to those early Christians, this statement of the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours, God, can be found in this story that happens on Palm Sunday. Uh, so if you do have a Bible with you and you're following along, I'd like to read from Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through 11. It says, when they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus gave two disciples a task. He said to them, go into the village over there, and as soon as you enter, you will find a donkey tied up and a colt with it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anybody says anything to you, say that the Lord needs it. He sent them off right away. Now this happened to fulfill what the prophet said. Say to daughter Zion, look, your king is coming to you humble and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the donkey's offspring. The disciples went and did just as Jesus ordered them. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them. Now a large crowd spread their clothes on the road and others cut down palm branches, that's where we get Palm Sunday from, of the trees and spread them out on the road. The crowds in front of him and behind him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Who is this? They asked. The crowds answered, it's the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. And so as we try to understand this donkey ride and its significance, I want to set the stage a little bit for what this means for us. 
the setting in Jerusalem is one that is essential. We know that Jerusalem is the center place of faith for the people of Israel, the Jewish people, and it's also the central political seat for all the power in the region. It wasn't just the politics of the Jewish people. It was the Roman rulers who had places there, and so they understood that this was not just the place of their faith because it's where the temple was, but it's also where Rome decided to set up their operations in a key place for them to rule in and as a part of. And so this is a political place, too, for the people. The Roman leaders had built up and fortified the city for their own needs, adding on their own buildings right next to the temple so that they could keep watch on what's happening and make sure that things never got out of hand. So as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on his donkey, he's riding into the center of faith, the center of politics, and the center of culture for the region. And he was riding in at a significant time. On the particular week that Jesus rides into town, it's the beginning of Passover. And at that time, that was the most sacred holiday of the year. And what it commemorated was the exodus from Egypt. Now, if you remember either from your Bible knowledge or from popular culture, which has turned this into movies and that kind of thing, you remember that God's people were enslaved in Egypt. And of course, God sends Moses to let my people go, and they do, and, God, and, and they are let go. And so the Passover is a reminder of the liberation of God's people from enslavement. Keep that in mind, the liberation of God's people from enslavement by a foreign ruler and by a foreign culture. And so in the same way on Holy Week, as we lead from Easter as Christians, Jesus rides into town not on a normal week, but on a significant week, just like this week will be for us as Christians. Jesus comes into town and he's celebrated by ordinary people, by peasants, by riding on a humble donkey, not even a horse, as others might have. He's met with waving palm branches and with cheers of Hosanna and with praises and with people bowing down and offering their lives to him. This is an expression of their joy and their praise and their recognition that their king is coming into town and things are about to change. And that's how the people understand it. His journey from Nazareth to Galilee has really come to a climax at this point as he rides into Jerusalem from the east. From the east. But did you know that perhaps there were two royal processions that entered Jerusalem on that particular year in 30 A.D.? Of course, Jesus, as I just illustrated, rode in from the east. But there would have been another procession riding into Jerusalem from the west. One of Jesus's processions, sorry, Jesus's procession was that of peasants. The other one was a procession of the imperial Roman Empire, and it was led by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea and Samaria, the land that we would call Israel. Now, Pilate's procession would have looked very different than Jesus's. It might have even smelled and sounded very different. The military column would be coming into town, not from a humble city like Nazareth, but riding in from the seaside retreat of Caesarea Maritima. Now, I want you to imagine yourself on the roadside on that particular day. 
as Pilate's procession enters into town and into the region, imagine yourself as a bystander of that procession, that parade also. And I want you to hear the hoofbeats of the Imperial Calvary. The horses and the foot soldiers decked out with leather armor and helmets. You would notice, of course, the sheer amount of weapons that they carried. Swords at their sides, spears in their hand, and more. The banners of Rome would be waving high. The sun would shine and would glint off the metal and the gold, and it would shine into our eyes and cause us to squint or to look back a little bit, and all that was intentional so that we would understand the majesty and the glory that we were seeing in Pilate's procession. We would be able to feel the rumble of the ground as the horses and the soldiers moved by and understand that they were making this happen. We'd hear the cadence of the army, the creaking of the leather and the bridles and the beating of drums. And of course, this crowd is not shouting Hosanna as they come by. No, I think we would just be silent, perhaps out of fear, perhaps out of awe, perhaps of just being overwhelmed, perhaps out of, out of anger and frustration because here comes a foreign army on God's territory. Silent onlookers from the day, curious, awed, resentful, and definitely afraid. So this procession comes in from the west as Jesus' procession comes in from the east. And I want you to remember that this is Passover week. Passover week. And it was standard practice for the Roman governors and rulers and the armies to be in Jerusalem at this time. John Dominic Crossan, the biblical historian who paints the other side of this picture of Palm Sunday using the history that we know, says this. The Romans did not arrive out of empathetic reverence for the devotion of their Jewish subjects, but to be in the city in case of trouble. There often was trouble, especially at Passover, a festival that celebrated the Jewish people's liberation from an earlier empire. You see, Pilate and the Roman governors were weary. Maybe these Jews might get the same idea about their current ruling empire, the Romans, as they remember and celebrate God's deliverance from another past enslaver. Jerusalem, at this point and on this week, was a powder keg, and all it would take was a simple match to set the entire thing off in a blaze. So maybe the question that we have is, was Jesus' procession accidental? Was the parade that he brought in just a coincidence at that point in time? Certainly not. Jesus knew the significance of that week. He understood the imperial ideas and the other things that were happening. And so what Jesus does is he rides into the city on a strategic counter-procession. Procession isn't a word that we use much, especially in this part of the area. Jesus rides in town with a strategic counter-parade, a parade of his own to match the parade that was coming from the other way. He knew exactly what he was doing. It was planned in advance. He was not only fulfilling the scriptures, but he was offering a different way to the people. And so you have, at this point, these clashing parades with their rival social orders, their rival theologies, and their rival politics. The procession from the West rules with power and glory and violence through the Roman Empire. And the procession from the East embodies an alternative vision 
of power and glory and the kingdom of God. And as we heard the story in our scriptures, I hope that you noticed uh, one of the pieces that Matthew said, because in all of this royal uh, parades and all these kinds of things, we might wonder to ourselves, well, what is our role in this parade and what is our role today? Notice that the scripture tells us that Jesus gave two disciples a task. I love that part of the scripture. He gave two disciples a task. They were to go and get a donkey that Jesus was going to ride. And as Jesus was arranging his counter parade, he enlisted the disciples to help. Could Jesus have secured his own donkey? Probably. But the point here is that Jesus brings his disciples then and now into his counter parade. He brings us on board to take part in the things that he's doing. And I still believe that Jesus is arranging counter parades today, as he has throughout history. And this is the point of what we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done, sorry, <laughs> wrong part, uh, the power and the kingdom and the glory. I think this is what he means when he says that, or when we pray that. When we are surrounded and we live under, whether in good times or in bad, we live under the kingdoms and the powers and the glory of all those who rule over us. Whether those are as bad as the Roman times or not quite so bad, what we see is that all of us live under these kingdoms and these powers and these glories, whether the office or the platform is local or regional or national or throughout the world. And as these parades come through in different ways in different seasons of time, we can always pay attention and look for the strategic counter-parade that Jesus is leading. The way where Jesus is saying, not that way, but this way. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, his procession was making a very, very clear statement. The politics of God are riding against the politics of Pilate, of violence and oppression. The politics of Jesus ride to inaugurate an agenda of liberation for those who are enslaved, to bring good news for the poor and the outcast, and to bring hope for the destitute. These are the things that Jesus seeks to bring in his parade. So it seems to me that with the coronavirus pandemic, that that has also become its own procession in our lives. And that pandemic procession has taken many different looks in our lives, in my life, and in your life. And just in the span of this last week, it has affected just our church alone in dramatic and significant ways. Because of the area that we live in, we have seen many people who are furloughed, people who have been laid off, and there are several handfuls within our church who do not have a job or are not sure when they'll be able to go back to work. This is the procession that is riding in and riding through our lives. And perhaps we are standing on the sidelines here and we're scared, we're afraid, and we're unsure of what to do next. So in the same way that Rome paraded right down the middle of Jerusalem, reminding people that they are in charge, that they're calling the shots, that they determine what everyday life looks like, it feels that this, this virus is causing us to live in the same kind of oppression. And it's good that we do in some ways. It's good that we stay home. It's good that we isolate ourselves from other people because this saves lives. And so this morning, what I want you to do is to envision with me 
what a strategic counter parade looks like in this pandemic. What would that strategic counter parade of Jesus look like? We might ask ourselves, where is the kingdom of God despite the best efforts to stop it? The easiest one for me is this medium right now. The, the way that we have seen churches and many other organizations pivot to still find a way to offer hope and to offer love and care for their neighbors. And churches are engaging people in ways they never did or never could before. And some who have never been a part of church or a part of that faith before are tuning in and they're connecting and they're finding ways to grow deeper. This is God's kingdom at work showing up and bringing hope and faith where perhaps we were just too busy before. Where else have you seen the kingdom of God, God's kingdom coming in our world? I'd love for you to share those ideas. Where have you seen the power of God as we pray, the power of God on full display? For me, I've seen the power of God this week in the statements and the choices of those who are choosing to live wise, but not to live in fear. I've seen many people who are choosing to be wise and to separate themselves or to, to do things that they wouldn't normally do or refrain from things that they normally would, not out of fear, but out of love and compassion for others. The primary way that I've seen God, God's power revealed is the same power that we see in Genesis. And we sang about this too, and I hope you caught that, this idea that God brings order from the chaos. In Genesis chapter 1, and this would be worth your reading if you're not familiar with it, I'd encourage you to go back and to look at this part and to see the places where, in the beginning, God hovers over the chaos and brings order from the chaos. How many of us need God to hover over our lives in this moment and to bring order to the chaos that we have experienced and are experiencing? Despite the challenges that many are facing of job loss, of social isolation, of illness, time and time again we are seeing God's power at work in the world when we see God still finding ways to bring order in spite of the chaos. One that came in from online, another strategic counter parade. This is good. Teachers working hard to continue to educate children. Teachers are having to pivot and change the way that they do things. And we've seen, for, for all the challenges that, that school has been this week, we've seen teachers working hard to make sure that their kids stay on track. And we've seen parents and grandparents and other caregivers working equally as hard to make sure that their kids continue to grow. These are the strategic counter parades of God. Where is the glory of God being revealed? I saw it one week in a story and just a snapshot that I want to offer you from one of our partner, one of our sister churches, another United Methodist Church in Tampa. And they were asked by the local school that they meet at if they could help provide toilet paper to the families of their school. In the setting that they're in, that was simply something that the families could not provide for themselves and they didn't have access to. And the school reached out to the church and said, can you help us to provide those things? And they said, yes, and then they tried to figure out how, and they realized that they couldn't get those supplies in the same way that you and I might find that hard to do, at least not in the volume to meet the needs of an entire school population. And so the church prayed, and they reached out, and the pastors shared that need through their social media. And it just so happened that one neighbor 
talking to another neighbor over a fence who is not connected with that church, who happens to work for a large distributor, said, well, we have got tons of toilet paper in our warehouse, and we can't move it, and we need to move it because we need to make room for to-go containers because, as this food supplier was realizing, they needed to supply their, their food people, their restaurants, with to-go containers and that kind of thing, and not so much with toilet paper anymore. And so all of a sudden, they were able to provide at least a truckload of toilet paper and paper supplies to the students and the families of that school because the glory of God was working when there seemed to be no way to make a way in the desert. And I could go on with story after story about all the good things that are coming out of this incredibly difficult and dark time. And that shouldn't negate the fact that this is a struggling time for people. What I'm inviting us to do is to remember that as we pray this prayer, what we're praying is, thine is the glory, yours is the glory, and yours is the kingdom, and yours is the power. And if you notice the pronouns, it's not mine is the glory and mine is the power to put my life back together to provide for my family. Or this is my kingdom and I have to make sure that somehow I can keep it all together. This prayer reminds us that the kingdom is God's, that the glory is God's, and that the power to overcome is also God's. We have seen so many examples, as someone just mentioned, uh, of people who are giving freely of their resources, even with threat to themselves and their own cash flow. Just the generosity of people. And I want you to know that when you see these good things happening, you are seeing God working through people. Whether they realize it or not, this is how God is revealing God's self. So as we think about those strategic counter parades, I want you to continue to look this week and think today about where you are seeing God show up. And to keep praying the Lord's Prayer and believing that God is with us. Now I want to offer a note in closing of my sermon here just to say that Palm Sunday is an exciting celebration. And it's set one week before Easter on purpose, because in the next series of days, the crowds will go from celebration of Jesus as the coming king to finding Jesus placed on a cross and then dead and buried in a tomb. A lot of things change and shift dramatically where it goes from Sunday being a bright, exciting moment of celebration to the darkest and the depth of humanity being on display where the Son of God came, who comes to, to bring life and hope to us, is killed. And what I want to say is that perhaps this is a good reminder for us in this season. That while we can celebrate and be joyful today, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but that some of the darkest moments are probably still ahead for us. But we do not enter this dark season and this dark week without hope. We may be entering a season where we're living in caves and we feel like we're living in caves and things are closing in around us. But I want us to keep our eyes focused not on that, but on Easter. And Easter will come next Sunday and we will celebrate in this format, Easter. But I want you to know that whenever it is that we can come out of these caves and we can safely, safely regather together for in-person worship, we're going to celebrate Easter again on that day. Because that will be a clear reminder to us that though things go into the cave, things also come out of the cave. It's a reminder to us that Jesus didn't go into the grave 
and his body is no longer there, that Jesus was resurrected. And we don't know how long this pandemic is going to last, and we don't know what the dark days look like, but we are not a people without hope. We can believe that God's goodness is with us and that we have hope. And despite maybe our best efforts, we can believe with faith. Because Easter is around the corner for us. And so we can make no mistake about that, that the Lord's prayer is anything but child's play. It is a prayer with power and with authority and that connects us directly to the God who can make a difference. So let us pray with the anticipation of Easter that thine is the kingdom and thine is the power and thine is the glory forever and ever, especially in this season. Amen. Thanks for listening. Make sure to visit our website, citruschurch.org. If you found refreshments in this message, share it with a friend. And hey, God loves you.